Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 11:27 through 12:9. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Izcah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going, toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's my pleasure to be bringing God's word to you this morning. Hope you are all enjoying God this Advent season and setting aside some intentional time to worship Jesus with your families and friends. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all the extra planning, shopping, parties, and programs that get thrown into our schedule that we actually lose sight of what this season is all about. And Advent is all about worshiping Jesus. The King has come and will come again. For that, we wait in hope. We sing, we rejoice, we decorate, we tell the story, we sip mochas, we eat Christmas cookies, all to the glory of God. Of God, We gain 10 pounds all to the glory of God, right? We even sit back and laugh. Think of it. We live in a society that rejects Jesus as its rightful king. He has been long kicked out of the halls of power, out of courtrooms, out of schools, and it's anathema to even speak his name in public these days. When was the last time you heard someone on television speak the name of Jesus in a positive way? And yet, Still, every year in December, the weary world rejoices. Up and down our streets, unbelieving neighbors string up lights to to declare his glory. 
Anti-Christian stores play Christmas hymns that declare their eventual undoing. Nearly everyone still celebrates Christmas. We should smile and laugh. Welcome to our party, folks. He makes the nations prove his righteousness, the glory of his righteousness. Jesus is King of Kings. Well, this year, as we are celebrating Advent as a church, we are looking at one of our God's favorite themes. He is an author. He is the divine author. He is the author of light and the author of life. And one of his favorite themes is um, after darkness light. The reformers called it post tenebras lux, after darkness light. It's a common, it's a common theme built into the nature of things. We see it in the creation event. God says, let there be light and light came forth and pushed back the darkness. We see it in the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. Once they sinned, God stepped into that moral darkness and made a way for them to be made right with him and step back into the light. Last week, we looked at the story of Noah. Noah lived in one of the darkest moments in all of human history, and yet even in that darkness, God brought light through his grace. Today, we're going to move on a few chapters forward in the book of Genesis and look briefly at the call of Abram. How many of us have heard of Abram? Most of us probably, maybe by Abraham. You know him by Abraham. Gets a little tweak to his name later on in the story. Well, Abram is one of, if not the most, popular, influential man in human history. The three dominant religions in the world all trace their roots back to Abram. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all see Abram as a key figure in their history. That's about 3.8 billion people around the world, or 55% of our population, of the population of the world today. Abram was and still is a very influential man. And that's really interesting when you read, like we're reading today, his origin. The guy didn't have a great start. He did not come from a great family. But what we're going to notice today is God likes to choose people that most of us would look past. It pleases God to take misfits and turn them into missionaries. Thank God he's still doing that today. I might be one of you might be a misfit this morning. We all were at one time. If you're not a misfit, that means God's saved you and brought you into something else. Right, which is a good which is good news. So we're gonna get to work this morning. We're gonna dig into this text and see what God has for us. But first let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time together in his word. Father, oh, it's so good to sit under your word. It's so good to gather with your people and sing songs of rejoicing. It's so good. As Jesse said, to defiantly profess our faith this morning, that we still believe in a world that doesn't. We still believe in our creator God. We still believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And we celebrate you this morning. Father, thank you for speaking into our darkness. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We would not know you if you did not give us your word and give us your son. And so this morning, I pray that we would Uh, rightly see and hear both of those things. We would rightly see and hear your word and we would rightly see and hear your son. Father, would you think through my mind today and speak through my vocal cords? Would your people hear your voice and not mine? 
Would you do this for your glory and our good and the good of our city? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 11 this morning. We're going to quickly get our bearing in the text. After Adam and Eve had screwed things up, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve to fix things through a very specific descendant of theirs, the descendant of their third son, Seth. But things are currently looking really bad, okay? Now listen, the first 11 chapters of Genesis show mankind's uh, progressive downward spiral into sin. They consistently rebel from God and they try to live in the moral darkness that comes from pushing away from the God of life and light. We saw this last week with Noah. If you didn't know, Noah was from the family line of Seth. So God was being faithful to his covenant with Adam and Eve when he spared Noah and Noah's family in the flood. The bad news is, by the time we get to Genesis 11... The family of Noah is in ruins. We, I mentioned it a little bit last week. God delivered Noah. God gave Noah grace. And Noah gets on dry ground and he worships the Lord. And then he gets drunk and naked in his tent. All right? Like it doesn't la- the purity of heart doesn't last long. Okay? Why? Because the nature of Adam and Eve is still inherent in him. He still has original sin. And so as we see their family line progress and grow and move out, the darkness of sin, the prevalence of sin gets darker and darker and darker and darker. So here we see the, in Genesis chapter 11, the family of Noah is really in ruins. What we see in the early chapter of, no, of 11 is Noah's family builds the Tower of Babel. And what do they say? They say, we have built this great thing. Like, look what we can do, right? We're doing this to make a name for ourselves. Again, we see the autonomy that Adam and Eve wanted. Autonomy, auto, this is two Latin words. Auto means self. Nomos means law, self-law. They wanted to rule themselves. They wanted autonomy. We see at the Tower of Babel, that's exactly what the people want to do. Collectively this time, right? Collectively, they get together. Their d- democracy works out this way. Let's all build ourselves a name. Let's do this and show the world how great we are. And what do they do? What, they, they basically erect this ziggurat. They erect this worshiping structure to show how brilliant they are. They're technological, advancing, you know, all their skills. Look what we can do. And God looks down and is grieved and confuses their text. Confuses their speaking, right? And here, so this is where we are. God confuses them. God sends them out. God judges that. Now this is where we're picking up our story, okay? Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Terah is a descendant of Noah, is a descendant of Seth. So that's why this is in here. It's showing us the current state of the family from whom the promised Messiah is supposed to come from. The one who would crush the head of the serpent. And what do we learn? Keep reading. Nahor, he fathered Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans. They lived in Ur. Ur was a Babylonian city. Okay, here, connection point. The Tower of Babel. Now they're living in a Babylonian city, okay? And in this 
Ur of the Chaldeans, they worshipped the moon. Terah's name literally means moon. So this is the current state of the line of Seth. All right? This is what the, the, the one family that is meant to bless the world, that is meant to bring renewal to all the earth and, and birth the Messiah. This is the state of that family. Now listen, this is meant, we're, we might not feel it yet, but this is meant to like set the mood, right? If this was a movie, deep, dark, ominous music would be playing right now, right? We should get the sense that, oh, once again, this is dark. Once again, things aren't going well. The one family that is supposed to be worshiping God and keeping the faith and out of this family, renewal and redemption is going to flow to the stricken planet is now in Ur of the Chaldeans worshiping the moon. See what I mean when I say that Abram Abram didn't have a great start. He's got a pagan father and he's living in a pagan city in Babylon. It's not looking very promising here. But the bad news really doesn't stop here. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. I'm sorry, I skipped too far. Verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. See, the bad news just kind of keeps on coming here. Abram gets married. That's good news. But Sarai cannot have a child. Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Genesis says that barrenness, quote, is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. They have no human power to invent a future. Right? This promised line is supposed to come through me. They're worshiping the moon in a Babylonian city and now his wife cannot get pregnant. This reminds me of Lord of the Rings and how the forces of darkness were multiplying and all hope rests in the line of men or more specifically in Isildur's heir and Sauron knows if he can crush him, all hope will be lost. This section of scripture is meant to press the air out of our lungs. Ugh. It's meant to show us how pervasive and hopeless mankind is when left on their own. Mankind are not benevolent. Mankind is not good. Mankind is idol worshipers. And when you leave them to their self, they worship idols, they push away from God, and the world gets dark. You can look at every godless nation on this planet, and you can see that's the truth. And you can look at our own, and it's getting darker as the day goes on. The line of Seth has failed. The seed of hope is almost spent. God's promise of deliverance and redemption seems to be snuffed out here. His promise to save mankind and renew all of creation back to what it looked like in the garden is going to fail. The single flame of hope is about to flicker out. The one family who was supposed to know God and tell the world about him has left him for false gods. 
They are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. The faith traveled from Seth to Noah, but somewhere between Noah and Abram, it's gone. Joshua 24.2 tells us that Abram here in Ur of the Chaldeans was, quote, serving other gods. This man Abram is living in a dark city with a, really a demon-worshiping father, a barren wife, and what's going to happen? Where's that story going? Listen, if you know anything about God, that's the beginning of a great story. <laughs> it's the beginning of a great story where mankind is not the hero, but he is. Tell me, if you're looking for a hero to save us, cue Spider-Man music, if you're looking for a hero to save us, is this your guy? Is this your first round draft pick here? I'll take the demon worshiper in the pagan city with a jacked up family and the barren wife. Let's see how this works out. From our perspective here, all hope is lost. Seth's line has failed and creation is doomed. With man, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. We're going to see three really powerful things today from Genesis 12 and the life of Abram. We're going to see how the call of God is gracious, radical, and missional. And how all of us must respond to that call in our own lives as well. Let me show you how the call of God is gracious. Let's look at, look at our text. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now listen, remember, Abram is in Ur, worshiping other gods and here it is. There's only two options in life. You worship some aspect of creation. It could be your own reason. It could be your own intellect. It could be money, sex, power, the moon, auras, zen, whatever. You worship creation or you worship God. Abram is worshiping creation. And the God who's separate from creation, the transcendent God, chooses by grace to speak to him and call him out of that idol worship. This is so, what's gonna happen when all of hope fails, when all of mankind fails? God's going to speak. God's going to light a match. God's going to bring light into a dark place. His call here brings hope into a desperate situation. Now listen, how many of us in our lives have heard a similar call from God. God calls us out of our maybe moral darkness, our intellectual darkness, our spiritual darkness, our relational darkness. He calls us by name. He brings us into the family of God. He brings us into his church family and we hear and we receive the light of his grace. This call here is from a sovereign God to his wayward children to step out of the darkness and step into the light. It's a call, here's a, here's a theological word. It's a call that is effectual. What's effectual? Effectual is a call that actually produces what it requires. Okay, So it's not like when I call my kids in the summer in for dinner time. Guys, dinner time! 
No movement. Right? My call is often received like, eh, okay. Sounds like a decent idea. I've got other plans for the next seven or eight minutes, but, and I know you're probably going to call me three more times, so I'm going to keep doing this until your face gets red. Right? Right? That's not an effectual call. When God, here's an effectual call. Let there be light. Boom. Light happens. When God says, when Jesus says to Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus gets up out of the grave. That's an effectual call. He didn't ask his opinion. He didn't ask if he wanted to stay dead. Lazarus might have been in the, you know, in the realm of heaven going like, yes! And all of a sudden he's like, what, 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 what? Right? He's getting brought back down, right? He might not have been okay with that, right? God's call is effectual to Abram. He speaks to him and brings forth the necessary response from Abram. This call creates light and calls Abram into the light. That's the same thing that happens to every single person who ever puts their faith in Jesus Christ. God's effectual call brings light into our darkness. And as he brings light into our darkness and he renews our heart and gives us faith, now we can receive him. Now we can put our faith in Jesus Christ. Whether that darkness was caused by a life lived on the edges in drunkenness and commandment breaking or whether that was a life lived in darkness through our own moral do-goodery and just trying to be a better person than everybody else. Both attempts at life are attempts to make our own way, to live autonomous, to push away from God and be our own God. But in that darkness, God loves to speak his clear and powerful voice and bring light Just like in Genesis 1, when God speaks light into existence, anytime he speaks, he brings light into the darkness. John 1 reminds us that the darkness cannot overcome it. God's call is effectual. It always produces his expected and intended result. Now listen, can I ask you, what hope would God have in Abraham's positive response? Right? If God just comes down and speaks like I speak, Abram, I want you to leave, leave everything you know and follow me. Nah, I'm good. Right? That doesn't sound like a great plan for my life. I don't think so, no. But God's, God's word does something different. It does something unique inside the life of Abram. And Abraham says, okay, I'll do it. It creates what he desires. See, this story gives me incredible hope. Abram is surrounded by people who have abandoned God, who've pushed away from God. But when God speaks to him, in that darkness, the light turns on. Just as he called creation into existence, now he calls his covenant community of faith into existence. It was there, it was there from the beginning, but the light had been brought, the light had been snuffed out. I'm sure that Satan was looking in going, yes, I got the last one. He's worshiping the moon. High fives. And God goes, yawn. Abram, I need something from you. Oh, God, you really are real. He wakes up. God doesn't play around. He speaks, he calls, and people answer him. 
That gives me an unshakable hope because it doesn't matter how dark of a place a person is. And sometimes this is the only hope we have. This is why we need to be people of the word. When our society feels dark, when our workplace feels dark, even in times when our family feels dark, sometimes all we have is to go back and go, listen, it's been dark before. And one of God's favorite themes is to let it get dark and then he brings the light. He reminds us he's the hero. He's the one bringing the plan to its expected end. When God speaks, the light turns on. I'm here today because God called me. Not because of anything in myself. You are here because God called you. This is the graciousness of God. It's often said that God has no grandchildren. Right? We, we want to pass our faith down, but that, pa- that faith doesn't come biologically. God has to speak to our children. I'm so thankful that I get to be up here with my kids today, that, each, that these, my two girls this morning, that God was faithful to his covenant, that God spoke into their darkness and the light turned on and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. You are here because God called you, because he's gracious. God doesn't look down from heaven and see a talented, righteous man and say, wow, I need that guy, I want that guy. He sees a moon-worshiping man and says, hmm, I don't know, I I might make that guy into the most influential man in human history today. I don't know, maybe I'll do that. Abram, boom, that's who we're talking about. That's the type of God that we serve. It's just that call that comes from him is just completely gracious. It's not dependent on Abraham's inherent goodness or his morality. And that's good news for all of us today. It does not matter where you are right now. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your parents were or what your parents are or what they worshiped. God's call is completely independent of any of your narrative, of any of your story. And right now, he's speaking to you, calling you into his marvelous light. That's good news. Everything can change for us from one word from God. In the New Testament here, the Greek word for the church Ecclesia means called out ones. Ones that God spoke and he called them into his covenant community of faith and he sent them on a mission. So firstly, first thing we see is God's call is completely gracious. Okay. Second point, I want you to see how radical this call is. Now nobody wants to be labeled a radical, but if you want to follow Jesus, you don't really have a choice. Jesus shows us in the book of Revelation, he detests a lukewarm response to him. He detests a lukewarm response, lukewarm worship of Jesus. Jesus says, I will spit them out of my mouth. Let me show you what I'm talking about from our own text. Look again at 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Do you see how God in this call is getting increasingly personal? He says, go. He says, from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. 
Not just a different nation, not just a different ethnic group, his own family. I want you to go. This is the mission of God. Abraham is called, right? He is brought into the family, but then immediately he's sent back out on a mission. There is no second option. There is no, 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 no. I, I just want to go to heaven. What is this stuff about going? I like my country. I like my kindred. And I like my family. I want the eternal security option. I don't want missional option. I like my comfort. I like the language that we're speaking. I like all my customs. I like it. I don't want that. I just want to go to heaven when I die. Please, can I have that? No, you can't. I'm shocked by how upfront God is with this deal. He doesn't put all those details that we don't like in the fine print. He front loads this deal. He doesn't play around like most preachers do today. He lets them know right away the radical consequences or the radical repercussions of answering, of responding to the call of God. Faith demands a radical abandonment of my past. The idol worshiping of my past, the sins of my past, the connections of my past, I have to abandon those radically to follow Jesus. Think about this. God is saying, you are no longer a Babylonian. You will be called my people. You are no longer a moon worshiper. You're going to worship me only. And by the way, many sociologi- uh, sociologists say this is the most sig- one of the most significant events in human history where the pagan world that ever, that's all, like all different gods and pluralism and all different kinds of gods, it went from paganism to monotheism. It's one of the most significant events in human history. And God says right away, you're not a moon worshiper, you're worshiping me only. You're not going to follow in your father's footsteps. I will now be your father. Isn't this radical? And look how God finishes off. Leave everything, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Where, where, where? To the land that I will show you. Wait for it. Where are we headed? God, uh, hold on. I need to know where this thing's gonna end up. I need to know what's the end. Is there a beach involved, perchance? Right? What's this gonna look like? Retirement op- options? Do I got options here? Golf course? Where are we going? Let me know how this thing ends for me before I step into and respond to this call. And what does God say? I will take you to a place I will show you. Do you hear the dependence there? I want you to be dependent upon me. Your job now is to follow me wherever I lead you. It's not very comforting necessarily, right? Don't know where this thing's going. You're leaving everything behind. You don't know how it's going to end. But God is in effect saying, follow me. I will lead you where you need to be. Listen, the call to follow Christ is the same. The call to follow Christ is the call 
to take your hands off your life. That might be the most radical thing I say all day. The call to follow Christ is the call to come and die to your fleshly ambitions. It's a radical call. You no longer have a say over your life. You hand that over to Jesus Christ. Christians listen to God, we read God's word, and we respond and do what he says. That's it. Now, the good news in this statement is that God does promise to bless, and God does promise to bring about human flourishing, and God, God does promise to be near to us as he's leading us. So I want us to see here that the call to follow God is radical. One of the first things people ask when you start talking to them about embracing Jesus is, what's it going to cost me? And for a long time in this country, the answer was nothing. It's not going to cost you anything. You can keep your friends. You can keep your income. You can keep your worldview. You can keep anything. It's not so anymore. It will cost you. Will I have to give up sleeping with my girlfriend? Yes. Will I have to break up with my boyfriend? Maybe. Will I have to give up my money? Yes. Will it cost me my career? It might. Jesus promised as much. Luke 14, 26 and 27. If you come to me but will not leave your family, you cannot be my follower. You must love me more than your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even more than your own life. Whoever will not carry his cross that is given to them when they follow me cannot be my follower. That's a paraphrased, it's called literally the easy to read version on that one. What is following Jesus going to cost me? Now listen, I get how Difficult, those questions look. But following God is not having something added to your life in a nice little quarantine section of your soul. The call to follow God is the call to embrace a whole new life, a whole new way of living. It's not an addition. You can't compartmentalize your faith. It doesn't work that way. The call to follow God isn't a call to a better life. It's a call to follow God who in, in himself is better than life. He is the source and the meaning of life. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We are being called into fellowship and called into communion with the creator himself. This is the thrill of the Christian life, to know this God. So we have here the God of the universe drafting a demon-worshiping dude into his eternal mission to renew all of creation for his own glory. This just pumps me up. Anytime I start thinking about how 
underqualified I am to be leading this church or how it's hard to find other church planters out there. It's hard to find other people following Jesus faithfully, faithfully leading their wives, faithfully leading their families, reading their Bibles, wanting to serve Jesus, wanting literally to follow Jesus no matter what it costs them. I look at this and Abram gives me much comfort. We're waiting on God to speak. That should comfort all of us. Our education doesn't qualify us. Our gifts and talents talents don't qualify us. Our wealth and prestige doesn't qualify us. God's call qualifies us. And then our response to that call shows that we have actually answered it. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the call. That's great news. And so here's what we see. This is what God promised to do for Abraham. Look at 12.2. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has blessed people five times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And now in chapter 12, he blesses Abraham five more times in the first three verses. God graciously chooses Abram to be his man. He graciously blesses him over and over again. But do you see here this this juxtaposition that's in this calling? It's a calling, it's a bringing in, it's a welcoming, but it's also a divine sending. It's a pushing out and a way into the world. It's a missionary calling. I will bless you to be a blessing. Hear that. It's not I will bless you to get you into the right zip code or the right neighborhood. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. God's blessing and calling have a missional purpose. He desires all the families of the earth to be blessed through Abram. So Abraham is called to go. These verses shape the thrust of the rest of the Bible. It's the story of God bringing salvation to all tribes and nations through Abram's seed. You will witness as you read the Bible that this promise expands from a personal promise to Abraham to a national promise to Israel and then into a promise for all the nations of the earth. Remember when Jesus said, he called his disciples, he said, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Hear it? It's a bringing in, it's ascending. It's a calling and a missional and a mission. The calling is laced with ascending. The same is true for us. If we receive God's gracious call to be his people, we are his missionary people. We are his missionary people who are to radically shape our lives around him and his values and his kingdoms, not our country's values and our country's idea of the kingdom of God or for human flourishing for that matter. So what does that mean for us practically? It means when, when we accept the call of God, when it comes to us, 
we have to take our hands off our life. Now, it doesn't mean he takes away our moral agency. We still have to choose. We still have to make decisions. We still have to, we have to choose to follow him and obey, obey him and, and, and study and work hard and all those, all those things. But there is a sense where first thing we have to do, actually all the time we have to do, is take our hands off our life and say, what do you have for me, Lord? What do you want me to do? And he might put that neighbor that you don't like right square in a place in your mind you just can't get rid of it. And you'll try. Well, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. I think I'm, it's me. That's probably the Lord. He might tell you to go to seminary. He might tell you to move neighborhoods. He might, who, I don't know what he's gonna tell you. I know, I know what he tells us in his word. Take our hands off our life and no longer make our decisions through the lens of our own comfort and desire, what we want. God's call and God's mission determines our decisions. Sounds pretty radical when I say it like that, doesn't it? That rubs us in places we just don't want to be rubbed. Where will I live? Is your comfort leading that decision or is God's calling leading that decision? What will I do with the rest of my life? Is God's mission a factor in that decision? How will you spend your resources? You get a raise or you, you, you get a bonus this year. Maybe it's actually so that you can raise your standard of giving and not just absorb it into your standard of living. Are you living, at, living for your own personal mission or the mission of God? See, I, I love that song that we sang last that said, nothing of our own efforts will stand if it's not built on Jesus Christ. Like, all glory be to Christ our King. Everything we do on this planet, if it's not towards God's mission of raising godly kids and building a godly family and building, planting a god, godly church and, and making disciples and renewing the city, if it's not for his mission, guess what? It's all gonna be forgotten. But everything built on the foundation of Jesus Christ is going to stand. So here we see, when God calls us, he sends us. We see it's a gracious call, it's a radical call, and it's a missional call. If you've been called by God, you've been drafted into the mission of God, and your life is no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Now glorify God in your body. Is this how you're living? Are you living like a called and sent missionary? Or are you living some watered-down, inoculated version of the Christian life? That's boring. A life of faith is thrilling. Now, if I finish the sermon up right there, you would be left with a good old guilty feeling and a little bit of motivation to try harder at mission this week. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just demand that we blindly obey him as he watches from above. We see Abram 
accept the call of God and begin to follow God, begin to follow Jesus. And one of the first things he does, he does it twice in this passage, is he builds an altar to worship and call upon the name of the Lord. Abram makes worship a priority. And his as he's journeying, still in this pagan land, but he's beginning to follow God. And when they stop, he builds an altar and he worships God and he wants, to be, he wants to hear from God. Obviously, he doesn't have scripture at this time. And so he needs to audibly hear from God. Why does he make worship a priority? Because worship reminds us of reality. The good and gracious God is at the center of all things. He is creator and I am a part of his creation. I am limited, he is not. Worship is meant to draw our eyes upward off of ourselves and place them on the eternal God where all of our hope is found. Worship shifts our focus from creation to creator. In a sense, this morning, every single worship gathering is meant to do that. You've heard me do this before. This is what it's meant to do. You come in worried about your kids, worried about your career, worried about your marriage, worried about your relationships, worried about the bills, worried about all the stuff coming up, worried about all of creation. And you come in here and you're meant to get this. Whoa, look up, look up. Put your eyes on God. That puts everything else in perspective. That's what this gathering is for. That's why worship is so important. Worship shifts our focus from creation to creator. So the way out for us, the way out for us from our maybe lame semi-Christian lifestyle is actually the way out is through worship, through getting our eyes back up on the creator and off of us. Think about the gospel this morning. God does the unthinkable. Again, he fulfills what he requires. God doesn't just command us to be missionaries to, to accomplish his mission. God is himself a missionary God. See, God's perfect son heard and accepted the call of God. He left his eternal homeland, his eternal family, right? He left heaven to come to this earth where God told him to go. And Jesus shows us what God required of him in that. He goes all the way. He goes the distance. Jesus was Indeed, the true and better Abram in all kinds of different ways. Jesus left his heavenly country to come to us. Now look, where he was hated by his own people. He was betrayed by his own people. And his obedience to the call of God cost him everything. Cost him his very life. The missionary Jesus doesn't just give up his country and his people. He gives up himself willingly to save us from our sins. On the cross, Jesus gave up his life so that we could receive the call into the family of God. 
And Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he went back to heaven so that he could send us the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey and live lives as missionaries for the glory of God. Jesus accomplished all of this for us. He lived that life that we failed to live, that perfect, obedient, missionary life. And he forgives us of all of our sins. And he sends that missionary spirit into our heart to get us out there and make disciples who make disciples. The cross calls us in and the empty tomb and the Holy Spirit sends us out. Father, I pray that your people would hear your call today and they would gladly embrace it. They would gladly accept it. They would recognize the work that you've done to make them into missionaries and that your Holy Spirit would empower us to live radically different lives, lives of light and truth with all the rough edges that light and truth brings in our society. Would you help us do that, Father? We want to see your kingdom come, your will be done. We want to see our neighbors come to know you. We want to see our friends and our family members come to know you. Would you use us for your glory? Would you use us for this purpose? Would you make us a city on a hill where our light cannot be put out, that people can see the work of God here at our church, Father God, and they want, they're drawn into it. They're drawn into a, a gracious God that calls them into this radical mission as well. As we come to your table, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for the covenant of God, the covenant that you made with Adam and Eve, the covenant you made with Noah, the covenant you made with Abraham, the new covenant you made with us through Jesus Christ, that we get to sit down and eat the, of that covenant this morning. Just be reminded that you're not, you'll never, ever fail us. That no matter how dark things get, you're always going to bring light into our darkness until the King of light, Jesus Christ, comes back and the whole world will be absorbed in his light and we won't even need the sun anymore. Father, would you help us turn from our sin this morning and put our faith in you and eat of this supper, eat of this covenant meal together rightly. We're reminded of the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he said, this is my body and he broke it. He took the cup of the new covenant and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, drink it. And Father, we're told that we're to eat and drink of this to proclaim the Lord's death until you return. So we do that by faith this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.